0: Yeah. I got my coffee. You all set? Yay. Yay. And what kind of coffee are we drinking today? (laughs) Oh, it's me and my, my weird bulletproof coffee. So coffee with ghee and stevia. Ooh,
1: (laughs) I've got the uh, vanilla sweet cream cold brew. And I sometimes wonder is Starbucks good or is it just convenient, but, (laughs) but either way, I love coffee, so I guess it's good.
0: All right, so welcome to Gallery Guide, Sordoni Artcast, the official podcast of the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University. I'm Heather Cavage, and I am the director of the Sordoni Art Gallery. And I'm Carly
1: Stasco, Outreach Coordinator. And today, Gallery Guide Sordoni Artcast is talking about therianthropes.
0: This is a word that I read and I don't say. Therianthrope. There we go. I'm going to butcher that a few times today. That's
1: fine. (laughs) We had Jen last time.
0: (laughs) All right. So let's first talk about why we're here. Um, Brutal Beauty, the transformation of women in mythology, um, is what we have in the gallery right now. Um, It's a mid-career retrospective of Pennsylvania artist Martha Posner. And she contextualizes the brutal inequality faced by women through familiar myths and folktales.
1: So previously on Gallery Guide, we've talked about this brutal inequality. So today we wanted to take a deep dive into the background of some of these transformation narratives to give you a better understanding of Posner's work.
0: Yeah, so usually I'm the lead on all things art, but like today Carly is going to guide us through these myths and folktiles because you know, that's your act- expertise, isn't it? At the risk of calling myself an expert, yes. Um, I love
1: global folklore and narrative archetypes. My graduate thesis was about archetypes and film cryptozoology, aka movie monsters. So I hope that I could really connect, help us connect
0: these ancient figures to contemporary art and culture. <laughs> nice. All right. So WTF, let's start off with theory and therapy. Say say it again. Say that. Say that word for me. (laughs) Right,
1: therianthropy. No, so therianthropy. therianthropy, Yes, it's a fancy Greek word for animal person. So we have therian, which is um, the word for beast, like specifically beast as opposed to animal, and anthros, which is person. So. This specifically refers to the myth or tradition of transformation into animals. Um, So werewolf is the one that everyone would know about, that lycanthropy, and that has a long history developing in what is now Switzerland in the Middle Ages. But this idea of a person being able to take on the mantle of a beast is a regular feature of folklore and mythology all over the world, going back longer than written history. Oh, wow. So how far back are we talking about? Earliest record, there's actually a late Paleolithic cave painting in southern France, which contains a depiction of a therianthrope that we call the sorcerer. Um, but any mythology about that figure would be pure conjecture, considering it's from get this, thirteen thousand BCE.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! All right. Well, okay. So Martha Posner explicitly mentioned a couple of inspiration myths in her interviews and her lecture. So why don't we start there? Um, And one of the big themes is Lita and the Swan. And I know this one. Um, Now, Zeus is the Swan, yeah? Yeah. So for context, the body of ancient Greek mythology is
1: developing circa 900, 800 BC or thereabouts. And the big thing that we need to know about Zeus and all of these myths is that he is criminally horny, but not for his wife. So that explains like 90% of Greek mythos. Um, And it's important to note here that while Zeus exists on this weird spectrum, somewhere between like lovable slut and sexual predator, depending on which version or translation, there is an important attitude that would be pervasive at the time of these stories' tellings that are like, you know, Zeus is all father, chief of all the gods. So of course, it's absolutely necessary for him to spread his seeds and make demigod and heroes. So we want to keep that in mind because I think there's a tendency to want to apply modern morality and we're going to do that. But um, something else to remember is that that's not necessarily the attitude at the time of these stories telling. Mm. Um, But Zeus himself was a master therianthrope, so most commonly transforming into birds like swans, like eagles, but he's also tried to get laid as everything from an ant to a rain shower. (laughs) I don't exactly know how that
0: operates, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Zeus here, he's the swan. So tell us about Leda. Leda was a princess who went on to marry King
1: Tyndarius to become the queen of Sparta. So as these stories usually begin, she was a total hottie and Zeus had to have her. But instead of chatting her up like a normal person, he transforms into a swan and then goads an eagle into attacking him so he could quote unquote hide safely in Leda's arms. Hmm. Um, Everything from here on out Varies depending on who tells the legend and what translation, but from the swan dive, Zeus either seduces or rapes Leda the same night she sleeps with her husband, the king. Um, So then she lays two eggs, because she slept with a swan, out of which hatch two to four kids, again, depending on who's telling the story. Some of them are mortal, some of them are divine, they all have really questionable parentage. Um, But one of these children is the infamous Helen of Troy, um, Mm -hmm. whose kidnapping started the Trojan War. Um, And she was purported in all of these versions to be the daughter of Zeus.
0: Ah, okay. Well, I think it's clear to, to see, you know, Zeus master of manipulation in many <laughs> levels Absolutely. of that word. So, okay. So Martha also mentioned something called a Selkie when she was talking about her beast coats and, you know, can you tell us more about that? Like, what are Selkies? Absolutely. I personally love Selkies. So Selkies are
1: almost always women, something to keep in mind. They're Celtic and really closely related to Norse Finn folk. So you want to think like the northern coast from the British Isles to Norway. Okay. So Selkies are mythical creatures that are seals while they have a magical coat on and beautiful women when they take them off. So one practical explanation that I find is really fascinating is that Celtic adventurers may have actually come across some Sami travelers from Norway. And um, the Sami people use sealskin kayaks. So they may have actually found these people drying out their kayaks on the banks of the shore. And that was the development of the Selkie myth. Um, So that would place the oral origins of this myth sometime around 100 AD. That's the first mention we have of Celtic people um, coming into contact with the Samis. But this is also another case where the written record of the myth doesn't show up until like the
0: 1800s. Oh, wow. Okay. What is, can you tell us a little bit about like the animal wife trope in relation to Selkies?
1: Right. So in a lot of folktales, there's this idea of the animal wife, that there is a guy who goes along and meets this mystical animal. And generally when we're talking about this animal wife, it's not like, oh, I'm going to go out and marry my neighbor's dog. It's more so I have found a Therianthrope that is part human, part animal, and now I need to make them my bride. So the idea is common enough in folklore to have its own name, but what I find personally fascinating about the Selkie folklore is that everybody in the story already knows about Selkies and what to do. So it's not like zombie movies where people are like, what's a zombie? Like, there's no discovery period of like, oh, what's this thing? It's just immediately like, oh, a sealskin coat. I know exactly what this means. <laughs> so every island, um, you know, all of these island communities have their own version where a fisherman, and it's usually like the cousin of a cousin of a known family name, someone that people would recognize on the island that stumbles across either the sealskin coat, the naked women, or both. On the shore as they're out fishing and they opt to bring her home. So then the fisherman becomes so enamored that he hides her magical coat and asks her to be his wife. So the selkie usually adapts as a human has human mm. kids, but she always longs for the sea. And then one day, the Selkie wife or one of her children tend to uncover the coat's hiding place, and she immediately packs her shoes and leaves. Um, oh. So she'll return to the sea with as many of her children as she can. And something that I'm really fascinated by is that there are versions where she can't take all of her children with her, but uh-huh. she has them, like, running towards the shore. And the ones that don't
0: make it turn
1: into boulders that are straddling oh. the land of the Oh, sea. my God. Oh, my
0: God. Is there, is there, I mean, do these kids get a, a coat as well? Or is it just that, you know, whoever she can take, she takes? It's whoever she can take, she
1: takes. So um, they tend to be really um, human in terms of the children, like largely they may have some of those characteristics, but it's not like they have the jacket that allows them to immediately transform.
0: Oh, interesting. So they don't get their own jacket. They don't come with <laughs> jacket qual- you know, jacket privileges. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They don't have that sort of at will transformation that it tends to be more of a permanent transformation for the children.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh God. Well, you know, what's really wild is that, you know, Celtic women had to figure, had a figure to look up to, you know, in being in, you know, somewhat, you know, well, they were abducted essentially, Mm -hmm. and now they're, they, this is, they're out. They are, they're getting away from this controlling abusive situation. Um, And, you know, goes ahead and gets out of there. Do not pass go, do not collect collect $200, right? (laughs) Very
1: true. Very true. So I also mentioned the Finn folk. And what's interesting is we have like this contrast, contrast between the gendered story of the Selkies and then finn folk who are from the same wear seal tradition but they can be male or female and they're really territorial and greedy so there's no like there's a romantic element to wanting to kidnap a selkie for a wife you know she's a beautiful woman but there is absolutely no reason in the norse tradition why a human would want to marry a a finn folk because they're jerks they're mean they're greedy they're violent but finn folk only stay hot if they marry a human being so Fin folk marry each other they get like (laughs) old and ugly and gross um contrary to the selkie tradition these Mm. finn folk are actually kidnapping humans instead
0: oh my gosh oh weird okay all right all right so so where else are we seeing like person beasts showing up like Martha Posner mentioned there's an influence of indigenous American and Mesoamerican myths. Um, where else do we see these therianthropes? Did I yeah. say it right?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so the most familiar term for a lot of people um, in the Americas would probably be skinwalkers from the Nav- Navajo tradition, but that's really um, a sacred oral tradition that I don't feel comfortable speaking on beyond the basics of. It's a malevolent
0: shapeshifter. Okay, all right, all right. So... Uh, We can culturally appreciate here. Um, Are there other therianthrope tales from the Americas that we can know a little bit more about?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the constellation Ursa Major, you know, the Big Dipper? Totally. According to Blackfoot tradition, the eldest of nine children, bearskin woman's, was kind of like a forest selkie. So she Mm. was a bear when she put her coat on and a person without it. And she starts dating a grizzly bear and her little sister finds out and rats her out to the rest of the siblings. So all the other siblings are like, there cannot be a dangerous bear in our town. We're going to go out and kill our husband. Uh. So when bearskin woman finds out, she goes full bear rampage. Like she becomes a bear, total rampage, kills everyone in the village, including her parents, But the two younger siblings get free, and they're able to warn the rest of the siblings that were out on the hunt, that, you know, Mm -hmm. she's on the rampage. So they're trying to escape, and the youngest brother shoots an arrow into the sky, and it transforms the whole family into the stars
0: with the seven brothers um, transforming into the big dipper oh my god i i honestly i I love the stories of how our our constellations became constellations to be honest with you
1: (laughs) yeah because actually um zeus is involved in a couple of them when we look at that um swan figure there is actually a um there is a swan constellation located near um the eagle constellation which is also a representation of zeus
0: Oh, God, no kidding. I I didn't know that. Interesting.
1: (laughs) Stick around for more Gallery Guide. Have you seen Brutal Beauty, the transformation of women in mythology yet? What are you waiting for? The Cerdoni Art Gallery is open Tuesday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays from noon to 5 for more information, visit www.wilkes.edu slash Art Gallery. And we're back with more gallery guide.
0: Alright, well, okay, let's let's move to another part of the world. How about Asia? Oh god, there are so many
1: therianthropes in Asia. Like oh. way too many to count. Um, but one that I love personally and shows up across the Asian sub, you know, continent is mm-hmm. the um, the fox. So part Ooh. human, part fox. In Japan, they're known as kitsune um, or kitsune. Um, in China and Korea, it's the nine-tailed fox, and in Vietnam, it's holi tin. And they're really, really cool. So most of the records that we're getting are coming from the 11th century. But again, this is another case where the oral tradition is obviously predating that by a long time. Mm. Um, So this idea of a fox that can transform, and specifically when we're talking about um, foxes with kitsune and nine-tailed fox, is that they're always a woman, at very least in tradition, always transforms into a woman. And it's this idea of them being a seductress. So this comes from China originally and then gets exported to all these other East Asian cultures. But of course, that exportation happened so long ago that there now are really important cultural distinctions and depictions. So in China, Japan, and Vietnam, nine-tailed foxes are morally ambiguous. They're kind of trickster characters, but they're usually considered a good omen. Mm. Um, They've been known to romance humans, and they love to get drunk, um, and they're usually (laughs) exposed when they get too drunk to hide their tails. (laughs) Um, And it's kind of cute. There's a lot of like sweet stories about them just being fascinated with humanity. So they hide them their foxhood long enough to get married and have human kids. And then one day, you know, hanging out with all the pals and the tail slips out and, um, you know, the husband realizes. And it's usually kind of like a a kooky, sweet, romantic story. There's not really a kidnapping element like you see in some other narratives. But in Korea... The uh, nine-tailed fox is a lot less romantic, as okay. she's after young men's hearts in a far more literal sense, or oh. sometimes their liver, depending on who you ask. Oh, God. Yeah. So um, again, a lot more violent, a lot more evil. And like I said, there this figure is ancient, right? This has been going on part of the oral tradition for a long time. Right. But it's still something that's important culturally today. So there's actually this adorable rom-com from South Korea called My Girlfriend is a Nine-Tailed Fox. So it's popular enough that, like, within the past decade, we have romantic comedies
0: based on this narrative. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, okay, it's uh, so we said in Korea, nine tailed foxes after the heart or the liver. I mean, mm-hmm. it, do they literally go after it, or is this more in a metaphorical
1: sense? Um, this is in a literal sense. Oh, shut so, up. <laughs> <laughs> so specifically in this rom com. Um, the power of the fox is contained in this like little marble orb sort of thing Uh so um the rom-com is basically the um fox girlfriend trying to connive to steal the boyfriend's heart or liver i forget which but he wants to be a television stuntman or a movie stuntman so he borrows her marble to um to do his stunts to gain her power oh my god So it's this trade-off back and forth um for that story specifically
0: <laughs> interesting wow oh my god i don't even know how you find stuff like that but okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> listen Korean rom-coms are my thing oh (laughs) that's how I find out about it because it's never just romance and comedy like if you pull up a Korean rom-com and a lot of Asian language rom-coms their genres are slightly different so it'll be romantic it'll be horror it'll be you know a little bit of sci-fi in there depending on what you're watching so they don't really stick to a firm genre like we tend to consider when we're browsing Netflix
0: Right, got it. Makes sense. Okay, all right. (laughs) All right, all right. So we've got Europe, we've got the Americas, um, we were just out of Asia. Do we have these stories showing up in Africa at all? Absolutely. Um, Ethiopian tradition
1: has one of my favorites. Um, So they believe blacksmiths bear the Buddha or the evil eye, which means that they're genetically witches, and capable of transforming into hyenas.
0: Right
1: on. So, like, I love the idea of a wear hyena. Unfortunately, this is, be- you know, tend to become a really anti-Semitic myth oh. in the area simply because um, blacksmithing is a really traditional profession for Jewish e- Ethiopians. Mm-hmm. And, like, as a general side note, folklore from everywhere, from damn near everywhere, has a beef with blacksmiths. Um, (laughs) yeah so there's this whole archetype of stories called the devil and the blacksmith with the premise being that the blacksmith is the only bastard wily enough to best the devil oh and then there's this mysticism associated with the blacksmithing tongs that they're sort of a um an original magic tool because you need tongs to right. make tongs in a forge. Right. So there's this like cyclical logic. But yeah, so that's um, the blacksmiths and the were hyenas. But in other places on the African continent, we have were lions, and they're usually associated with either living royalty who are able to transform or spiritually returning um, mm. royalty. And then mm. were leopards, which tended to be more closely associated with gods and deities than human royalty which is all like super dope because in Europe we did have werecats, but they were like house cats, like literal. Like my cat Kiki. Yes, like Kiki, (laughs) which I would not be shocked if Kiki was actually a witch.
0: Um, Um, I I wouldn't be shocked myself. (laughs) I mean, she's the queen of everything, so I am not shocked at all.
1: <laughs> right. But in Africa, you know, you have, you have these animals in your backyard, so you could think big. Um, and it's right a cool all. demonstration about how no matter where we are, what animals are living in our backyard, at some point, someone's going to think,
0: okay, but wouldn't it be cool if that was also a person? <laughs> <laughs> and now, do you think that's how shapeshifters came to be? Or, or is there another common thread or theme that we should be aware of? So I think in a
1: literal sense of like, why are we coming up with these things? It's not, it's not ancient aliens. I swear to God. Uh, (laughs) It's, um, it is more so, yeah, looking in the backyard and looking around you and thinking, you know, it's like, but right. And there's this formula for any sort of monster. So you think of something like Bigfoot and you're like, it's like a person but big and hairy Um, Mm -hmm. or a unicorn. It's like a horse, but with a horn. So Mm -hmm. when we're looking at Therianthropes, there is this longstanding tradition of saying, well, what if we made this a little bit cooler? What if we made it bigger, gave it wings, whatever? What if we made it part person? Uh So that's kind of the literal sociological sense. Uh But in terms of origin stories in folklore, we have three major archetypes. And so the first of these is when we're looking at creation narratives, especially in Chinese, Mesoamerican, and Indigenous American cultures, there's Mm -hmm. this idea of animal ancestors. Mm -hmm. That is, people are an evolution of an animal, you know, higher stage of beings. And it's important to note that these are myths that are predating Darwin's theory of evolution. Oh, no. Okay. So this idea of, you know, we're like an animal, but higher, you know, It's this sense that therianthropes are animals that have gotten so wise that they've straight up ascended to a state of personhood that Mm, they can switch in and out of. Um, And related, sometimes they're um, half breeds with partial animal parentage, you know, related Mm. to that. So it's either um, humans have a backstory of evolving from animals or that there is some sort of animal parentage. Um, The second is a connection to the divine. So this is shamanism, magic, godhood, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And these are the myths where the animal person is seen more as a deity or an omen, as opposed to an actual like human character. Mm-hmm. So this is where Zeus comes in, but we also have women like the Valkyries who have feathered cloaks in North myth- mythology, mm-hmm. and then in contemporary uh, Central American shamanism, they're actually wear jaguars, like people that transform. Oh, so like
0: interesting! Into. You know, Martha has some really earlier work that um, is playing around with this idea of jaguars and. Um, I'm thinking this might be, uh, based on some of her time she spent in Mexico. So for those of you who don't know Martha Posner, you might want to uh, go to her website and take a look at some of her older work. Absolutely. Yeah. Her masks, right? Yeah. No, she actually did paint- paintings, uh, based around, uh, Las Meninas and, and a Jaguar kind of pairing the two. So Ooh. yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Nice.
1: And then so finally, we have a sort of like spiritual link that's neither not necessarily part of a di- divine connection, but rather divine intervention. Yes. Okay. So this can be an act of catharsis, or it could be punishment. So selkies, like we mentioned earlier, are said to be supernaturally formed from the souls of brown people. Hmm. Um, or in some traditions, um, some mythos like Maori traditions, there's a literal connection between a person and an animal kind of like, how we would think of a voodoo doll. So what happens to one happens to the other.
0: Totally. Okay. So this is kind of where uh, Daphne and Apollo kind of stories fit in. Um, the idea with Daphne that she was trying to escape Apollo um, who was pursuing her and she and couldn't take no for an answer kind of thing. So he, she uh, calls out to her father, her father changes her into a laurel tree to save her from assault and, you know, At this point, like she's, she's gets to live, but that transformation really is also a death. Like she can't, doesn't get to live as a woman. She gets to live as a tree now, you know, it's a little bit different, but the only way that she's saved from rape or abduction is literally to change form and you know, that's, that's kind of amazing to me. I mean, uh, I, and it, w- with a thing that pisses me off though, <laughs> I have to say <laughs> that Apollo still plucks a little laurel tree or la- mm. laurel leaf from her tree, um, as this prize and it, Oh, it just pisses me off because it's still like, like this little, like prod, like, Oh, I, you know, but I still got a piece of you kind of thing. Oh, right, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. But absolutely. That's that divine intervention that we're looking at.
0: Got, it. Um, got and it. in
1: a sense divine divine punishment right because it's not like she has the ability to transform
0: into a tree and back exactly exactly like this is it like for it's either be raped or be a tree you know mm-hmm. there's, there's no bodily autonomy really anymore because e- even then there's no way that she can actively even stop him from picking the leaf like right. ugh, pisses ugh. me off
1: <laughs> we'll be right back with more gallery guide Are you an educator in Northeast Pennsylvania looking for a pandemic-safe field trip? Then schedule your tour at Sordoni Art Gallery. We offer guided, age-adapted, and subject-adapted tours for all of our exhibitions. Contact me, carly.stasco at wilks.edu, for more information or to schedule your class tour. That's K-A-R-L-E-Y dot S-T-A-S-K-O at wilks.edu. So now we have a good idea of how these narratives function. Um, I know I brought up that cave painting at the start, but can you tell us a little bit more about how visual artists are treating these transformation
0: tales? Well, you know, um, I, I kind of just went through and thought about what we've had at that Sordoni. And um, and I and I was actually, you know, in going back to our Japanese woodblock printing show. Um, I was trying to think if we had any like weird little creatures in that, but I mean, honestly, in that exhibition, we didn't necessarily have, um, therianthropes that were, um, represented, but the, but they, we did have a good number of Kabuki players, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Um, you know, and, and the, the thing is, is that like our, our exhibition really did range um, kind of the most recent being into the 19th century. So we, you know, it was really a, a, a huge span of time. So with the kabuki players, the kabuki was introduced in Kyoto in the beginning of the 17th century um, by a female performer mm. um, before it became all-male theater as it is today so like just think of it. its origins yeah. are, are female but kabuki underwent um, a series of transformations and uh after several years of success the government was kind of displeased by the highly profitable like after hours pursuits of actresses um and of course they, they were <laughs> uh, right right
1: because they're too successful <laughs> too, you're you are too woman and too
0: successful and we don't like it <laughs> We don't like it, so we're going to put a bunch of pro- prohibitions on on them. And this is in 1629. Um, so that therefore, now actresses are being replaced by young boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then they had a similar prohibition. So then. Um, they became, uh, after attracting too much attention from homosexuals, their roles on stage were essentially taken over by mature men. So really the, the depiction of women had to be by transformed men. Um, yeah. So, so we have that. So I know it doesn't necessarily fit, um, in, in into Therianthropes here, but I thought that transformation and and sort of like the politicism of it was interesting.
1: Absolutely. Um, And I do think a lot of those, um, those therianthropes from Japanese mythology. And again, you know, it's beyond just the nine-tailed fox. I think a lot of them do show up as godlike figures or omens in these performances as well.
0: I, I completely believe it. Um, you know, and I, I mean I think all of that mythology is what's being represented in some of this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I I you know, I, as I was kind of going through um, the last show or that the Japanese woodblock show, um, I was like, oh man, we don't have too many like cr- weird little creatures and stuff. We did have like this massive snake um mm-hmm. that was represent like massive, that was being like, that was battling warriors and stuff, but I didn't have too much other information on it. But, you know, uh uh so so you know we have like this idea in the renaissance like the reinterpretation of greek myths um now we haven't shown any renaissance uh paintings here at the sordoni um in my tenure here uh and uh, or i don't i don't know that we really have ever um we have had very referential kind of pieces especially in our greek mythology exhibition that we had um in 2016 um but uh the trend during the Renaissance was, was that mythological painting was like the top of the heap. It was like, what was the most desired and only the most privileged artists were painting mythological paintings. Mm. And the, this was a point in time where even art collecting was changing. So um, most of the time prior to that um, art, you know, paintings were being acquired by the church or uh, like, or government, mostly the church. Um, but now as we get into the Renaissance, we see this emergence of, you know, wealthy people that are buying artwork for their private homes and putting these, um, you know, these mythological paintings, enormous mythological paintings in In their homes, you know, and, uh, but these works of art are somewhat of, you know, reinforcing like the, you know, patriarchal structures, you know, it was reinforced that women remain virtuous and chaste and transformation was an escape from less than savory situations, such as when we were just talking about with Apollo and Daphne. Mm-hmm. Um, But if the woman was, you know, and that's certainly if that's, if the woman is not heading towards marriage and, you know, with some scholars, Daphne, Uh, Had declared um, her love for Diana. Um, So that's showing like queer love. And that was certainly not going to be reinforced during the Renaissance. Um, But you know that we also have this transformation that is representative of marriage. And um, and it's often sort of reflective of like these these young women who really don't have any participation in the decision-making as to who she is going to marry. And she's remaining chaste and virtuous for this husband that she will eventually have and probably not know very well. Um, and so we have this narrative of the rape of Chloris, who becomes Floris. So it's this sanitation of like this, rape or this, this, um, less than savory, you know, uh, encounter, um, and that it is essentially reinforcing that, you know, it's all going to be okay because now you're going to be like a happy mom and you're going to push out babies. And that's all that's, that's you fulfilling your purpose in life. You know, that's literally what a lot of this Renaissance use of mythology was doing, especially for women at that point. So now, um, you know, I, I had to go to one of my faves. Um, so I mentioned Kiki earlier, who is my cat. Um, <laughs> not the same person as Kiki Smith, <laughs> but my cat is named for Kiki Smith. Uh, and, um, and Kiki is really well known for um, pairing women with animals. Um, and uh, one in particular that I'm kind of really honing in on because it parallels Ma- Martha's work uh, very mm-hmm. well is the uh, woman-wolf pairing, um, which is, you know, an outgrowth of the Little Red Riding Hood tale. Um, now, in 2001, she did the work Companions, which is a large image that sort of shows uh, Red Riding Hood squaring off at, with the wolf, like they're hmm. equal adversaries, like they are um, in profile, they're facing each other down. So it it's a little less about Or it's a little bit more about like Red Riding Hood can certainly take on the cunning of the wolf. Like she's not going to be a victim to be consumed. Um, She addresses this again in the piece Born, um, which uh, she directly uses the Little Red Riding Hood narrative showing uh, Red Riding Hood and her mother emerging bloody from the wolf's stomach. Um, Mm. So again, like it's, so, so if we think about that, that title born, um, it is meant to be like, like this rebirth. Um, it's meant to be like this, almost this baptism, you know, kind of emerging from, from your predator, um, unscathed in a way like, you know, it's not a victim, but a hero.
1: Nice.
0: So, and finally with rapture in 2001, um, we have this reversal of power, which is very similar to born, but this is a sculpture Mm -hmm. where it is a woman that is emerging from the belly of a wolf. Um, And again, the wolf, typically a metaphor for consuming women, um, but she treats it as an origin story. She emerges from the stomach of the wolf, triumphant, overcoming her oppressor. So um, that is what I think is really awesome about Kiki is that um, she almost goes back to the origin of the Little Red Riding Hood narrative, which if you go to the origin, she literally, gets away and she gets away not by anybody saving her she gets away by her own cunning like she is the one that figures out how to get away it's not like the lumberjack that comes and gets her it she gets That's away right. herself so i love the fact that we've got that she she doesn't need a hero she's her own hero you know right
1: and i also i know um the intent with these, with, Ke- with uh, Smith's pieces is that Little Red Riding Hood story. But since we're talking about mythology and therianthropes, I have to think a little bit too about um, the Romulus and Remus story, about the she-wolf being the birth of Rome as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I'd have to imagine that, you know, looking at those pieces, there's a little bit of, of something in that as well, you know, being... Mother to a nation with that wolf metaphor in there too.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, in some iterations of Little Red Riding Hood, the the wolf was a werewolf, um, which oh. I thought also was also pretty interesting. I I can't recall what iteration, but there oh, was- of course. And everybody's telling Little Red Riding
1: Hood in a slightly different way. We got to keep that story recycling over and over again because it's such a good narrative and it's so fun to adapt to different situations
0: oh god yeah i totally agree (laughs) oh
1: so to wrap it all up in a nice little bow we should probably bring this back to martha right
0: yeah 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 so i thought i'd share a little bit about like why i wanted to bring martha here to wilkes university and and for those of you who can't get to wilkes university why you should check out martha posner um, Martha is, is somebody who binds political experiences with narratives that we are all familiar with. Like, obviously we were just talking about Little Red Riding Hood. Um, she references Lita and the Swan, Miller's Daughter, you know, it, you know, the frozen Charlottes. Like all of these are, are maybe narratives that we know in some capacity. But um, I, I, I think what that creates an entry point that is very easy for us to, to kind of grasp. And then what she does is somewhat trickier, you know, like she, so it's not necessarily a retelling of those stories. She's pulling these narratives that we know very well um, and then uh, somewhat applying them to personal experiences. Um, It could be their own, it could be a collection of, um, it kind of depends because um, in some respects, some of her work is very, very personal and very referential, whereas in other, um, instances, it's a little bit more of like for women in general. Um, but with her, the, she's telling these stories because, you know, she is looking at the lessons that we've been taught and how that they've been somewhat wrong you know how we don't necessarily need to assume these lessons because um these are stories that we are told during our childhood and growing up and they're meant to be these um narratives on morality and narratives on teaching us about you know gender essentially in in a lot of cases and 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 they aren't necessarily written by women or being told or in a way they're not being reinforced well they shouldn't be reinforced by women because half the time it's about keeping women down. But and, and that's what, what women, that that's what Martha is really trying to say here, that these narratives are flawed. And um, our personal experiences should be integrated into this to show us how messed up these lessons were. And in that case, she's looking to subvert the narrative. She's pointing out the inequities. She's telling us the cost of what these lessons are for women. Um, that's what I think is the magic behind Martha's work. We know when we walk into that gallery, um, that it's uncomfortable and she is pulling from those narratives that, you know, and pointing out why it's so uncomfortable. That's why you should be checking out (laughs) Martha. So,
1: um, when I was kind of thinking about these transformation myths, I was really keeping in mind that back area with the mercy children, um, Martha's beast coat and memory of flight in terms of um, the actual transformation myth aspect of this. And what I love most is that Posner is really acknowledging the pain and horror of these transformations. Like it is so easy to totally rose colored glasses romanticize, romanticize the whole thing like we um, like you mentioned was happening during the Renaissance when we're looking at these transformation tales but there is a genuine balance between the brutality and the beauty of these works in Martha's presentation and I'm reminded of Guillermo del Toro's conceptualization of monsters as the patron saints of imperfection that they have something to teach us about empathy and Martha's transforming women guide us in a similar message of both trusting the process of growth and healing and to have empathy for ourselves and others while we heal.
0: Yeah. uh, Oh, absolutely. You, you say you sum that up very, very well. (laughs) Uh, So, so beautiful job today, Carly, your expertise is um, just, just, unending. (laughs) And I I always love it because, you know, for those of you who have never met Carly, she is a consummate researcher. So if you don't, if you ask her a question, she doesn't know the answer. She'll come back to you with a a book the next day. It'll be great. (laughs) So, so it's awesome. it's time though that we got to wrap this up, and uh, it's it's the point in our podcast where we want to thank everybody. So, Carly, take it away.
1: Yeah. So, in addition to our usual gratitude towards Martha Posner for her gorgeous exhibition, Wilts University and the Sordoni Art Gallery staff for all of their hard work, and the Sordoni family for injecting art into our campus community, I also want to send a little shout out to my MFA mentor Ross Claven, who helped me research through my ongoing spooky phase and all of the internet crypto zoologists who have put together a vast web of lore that is like way too often ignored by academia
0: oh god here (laughs) here thank you and thank you for joining us uh, here on gallery guide and i hope that you can make a take a moment uh, moving forward to be sure to come by to see brutal beauty before it closes on april 11th so thank you